Hey guys, we are back with another one of our live shows, a part of our live show series. I know that it's been a while, but we were so lucky to have Jocelyn Cooper, one of the co-CEOs of Afropunk, join us this week. Please excuse any background noise. As you all know, with the live shows, we don't have as much control over the audio, so bear with us. And I was not present for this one, but... Glenn and Chelsea held it down, so give it a listen and enjoy. It's Shade at Black Girls Texting. I know y'all see my text. You better answer me back. I'm Chelsea Pinky, also known as the Washing Machine Queen. I'm classically trained. Me, 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 me. It's Glenn at That's Dry Brat. Wow, you did us. Hello everyone, thank you so much, literally from the bottom of our hearts, that you came out here in this gross weather. Thank you too, Jocelyn, for coming out here. Thank you for having me. Of course, um, in case you all did not know, we are Black Girls Texting, we're two-thirds of it. Um, Our co-host is stuck in California right now, but um, we host a weekly podcast and we do monthly shows here at Dumbo House or any of the houses worldwide, so... Look on the app. Um, go ahead, Marja. And we always love to feature uh, other black women um, that we admire. Yes. And this time, we're so very honored to have Jocelyn Cooper, who's an entrepreneur, innovator, history maker, and nurturer of the creative process. A 25 plus year veteran of the music business. Woo. Okay? She is a partner of Afro um, a marketing, media, and events company that produces annual festivals worldwide, including here in Brooklyn, which clap if you've been to them. They're going from the beginning. You're, she's a former A&R at Universal Records and senior vice uh, president slash special assistant to the chairman of the Universal Music Group. You were the chief architect of Universal Records' musical identity and brought Cash Money, Nelly, and Three Doors down to the company. And prior to that, Cooper spent four years building Midnight Songs and making her the first and only African-American woman to run a major music publishing company. You're also a Brooklyn native. Yeah. That's the best part of that. Um, So for our introduction and our little icebreaker, because this is not just Glenn and I up here um, speaking to Jocelyn, I want you all to feel like you're a part of the conversation because you are. we're gonna do a game. We normally play a game called Red or Reply, but because you are so involved and immersed in the music community, we've switched it up a bit. So, we're gonna tell you a classic album or song, and then we wanna hear for both you and our crowd if it uh, like brings up any emotion, uh, if you have a good story that it reminds you of, please share it with us. Um, so, let's just get started. So first we'll hear from Jocelyn, and then I'll throw it to the crowd. Um, so the first song is, or the first album is D'Angelo, Brown Sugar. Oh, I love how everybody said, mm. <laughs> Sounds like we all have some memories. What's the first thing that comes to mind? What's the, yeah. Or do you have a good memory? Oh, I have an amazing memory of that whole album. Um, Spill the tea. The one that I can say publicly. Um, <laughs> 
there was a song on that album that was written about me on that record. Wait, what song? Is that the ticker? Um, so that's a, actually a really I didn't I didn't know that until many years later. Um, but I was told for those of you who don't know, D'Angelo is signed to my is signed to my still publishing company, uh, and I worked with him uh, when he was 17 years old, and essentially um, introduced him to Raphael Sadiq and Ali Shahid Mohammed and Angie Stone and all of the people, and even Kidar Massenburg, all the people that were involved in that record. Uh, so I have amazing memories about listening to demos um, and uh, sort of threatening him to go work right with Raphael Sadiq, which he didn't <laughs> want to do. Um, many, many, many memories. Uh, but the first thing that comes to mind is the song Dreaming Eyes, which he told me years later he wrote about me. Wow. Wait, Glenn, do you have a memory about that album? I'm so obsessed with D'Angelo. I do know that. I don't know that I even have a specific memory. I mean, I think I always say, like, if I had to bring one album with me or, like, one artist that I could listen to for the rest of my life, I can't swear. I just remember the music video. I was pretty young, and I was like, this is what a man's body looks like. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, any memories for you guys? Like, scream it out. Any? A word that comes Word? Out. Word association, okay. guys. All right, we'll move on then. I know you guys are lying. Baby oil? Oh. <laughs> I would agree with that one. Um, uh, what about Beyonce's newly released, The Gift? Just brilliance. You know, she just is, um, just black excellence personified, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's really what comes to mind. Did you guys like that album? Yeah, I loved it too. Okay, Miseducation of Lauren Hill. Oh, oh, I'm loving this. Masterpiece, classic. So can I say something? Some of these, the records are weird for me because I was, at the time that, that um, the first two records were out, I was literally in the music business and working. Right, behind and I the remember, scenes. Yeah, behind the scenes. So I remember when Miss Education came out and I played that record for people that were in my office and people who were a little older and whiter and who were just like, I don't get this. And I was like, so that's the first memory. I was like, oh, I played that for someone that I worked with and they were just like, I don't get it. I was like, how do you not get this? Yeah, so that's the first memory. And then it clicks in with um, just, um, I, like, <laughs> I feel like there's a story. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the story is, um, was that record for 
me at that time showed showed me the possibilities of what you and what an artist could do when they sort of put it themselves completely into the work. And I think she went on, it, that record went on to sell over 10 million records. Like it was just insane um, how, how well that record did. But it was, she just, she left it all in the record for yeah. me. Like her life was just like there. Does it remind you all of anything? Just yell it out. Miseducation of Lauren Hill. Womanhood. I feel like courage, inspiration. Okay. The music, the music driven, not anything else. Music driven, not the anything music, else. Not, not her way she looked, not, not how she no looked. It was the music. Yeah, it was the music. Yeah, yeah. like a female rapper, but like yeah, it's the music. not. But you also, know. how do you how do you sing that well? How can exactly. you rhyme that well? How can you do all of those things that well? Produce all of that, write yeah. all of that, like all of it, just like, like, damn. There's some yeah. kind of synergy there, right? Like yeah. Small, yeah. I mean, I have a verse from Tell Him, like tattooed on the side of my body. What verse, Glenn? <laughs> uh, it says, I know I'm imperfect and not without sin, but now that I'm older, I'll try these things, and, and I got it on my 18th birthday. <laughs> Such a cliche. Awesome. Um, Solange, a seat at the table. So for me, that's a different memory. Um, other than the brilliance of the record and how much I love the record. And when I, ah, ah, a couple of different things, sorry. Um, I played the record for my partner at Afropunk and he listened to it for the first time. And he was like, oh, it's cool. I was like, it's cool, this is amazing. And then, for me, it, it all, it went back into my life, because I guess it's, it agrees about me. I'm in my life right now. And because Raphael Sadiq uh, produced the record. So it just was like this full circle moment of his brilliance, because he's one of uh, my favorite producers of all time. Yeah. He's also a songwriter that I represented for many, many years. Um, introduced him to D'Angelo and a whole bunch of other people. And to have him collaborate on a moment that really, I think, affects change for black women um, was, I mean, I, I can't even, it just, validates the work that we do at Afropunk. I know that might sound a little strange, but it was a very validating record. And it also, there is you know, something happening in, in music right now. There was a, a moment, what was it, two years ago, three years ago, where you know, R&B and black music, particularly songwriting, seemed like it was going to be dead, and black radio was dead um, and that record and subsequently many others have have changed the tra trajectory of that yeah but you want to take the last piece um so this is just a collective of cash money what comes to you 
Yeah, we know there must be stories. If you yeah. want to tell the crowd in case they don't know. Uh, so I used to head the A&R department at Universal Records and um, one of the signings um, that we signed was Cash Money and Cash Money produced Little Wayne and Baby and you know through that Drake and Nicki Minaj and sort of all these brilliance uh, that has changed culture dramatically, but what comes, the first thought in my mind is empowerment. Uh, because when I did that deal, there were folks in the company that I worked with, and particularly black people that I worked with, that didn't want that deal and didn't want us to do it. So I had to really fight hard internally to, to close that deal and get that done. And the deal that we did with Cash Money was uh, a P&D deal, pressing and distribution. Now that you know people stream, you don't really need P&D deals anymore. But it was a deal that, that that company, black men, got to own their own masters. And those are deals that only essentially prior to that very few black people ever got. Um, almost no one did. Uh, so I was very proud of the business behind that deal. Aside from the culture and changing culture and the shift in culture um, and helping to usher Southern hip hop um, into mainstream on the radio, which is what those records did. Um, I'm quite proud of the deals that I did during that time. Um, which changed the trajectory of the music business for our people in many yeah. ways. And I'm sure their lives as individuals too, but like yeah. big uh -huh. time. <laughs> for sure. Last one, uh, Megan Thee Stallion. Beaver. Beaver. Best album ever. <laughs> the most requested artist at, at Afropunk at the moment. So we yeah, love her. people love Megan Thee Stallion. Are you guys make the sign thing? Someone, someone said online, be careful with that hot girl summer because it leads to a, a pregnant winter and a baby mama spring. <laughs> but anyways, we love that you're here for our interview at Dumbo House. And we know that you're a Brooklyn native. Why is Brooklyn so important to you? Why is Brooklyn? Why is that? That's not a question. Um, I mean, it is a question, but it's like, why is Brooklyn so? I don't. Brooklyn is just in my veins. My my uh, father was born in Brooklyn um, and died in Brooklyn. I was born here. I come from fourth generation New Yorkers. Um, Brooklyn is just the heart and soul of. Um, for me, anything that um, has edge and attitude and um, vibrato and um, Brooklyn is uh, green trees and summertime and... Next um, question. <laughs> no, next no, it that is. Was, that was a poem. That was like a three verse. Right. Um, speaking of summer, though, what's one of your favorite Brooklyn quintessential memories? Of Brooklyn? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the summer. 
in the summer. Um, you know, I'm lucky enough to have had family here, so I have a house and a backyard, and just chilling in in my backyard. My memories of going to East Beach with my sister when I was little, sitting in her car with her smoking weed, playing <laughs> jazz with her friends, me feeling like a grown up. You know. Do you want to share one of your Brooklyn memories from? Is it on your spirit? No, but I literally remember always sitting with like my babysitter and maybe talking about rolling trees and stuff, and I couldn't figure out what that meant. Um, yeah, always feeling like I was from. Yeah, the block parties is what I remember. Like there's always a block party in Brooklyn in the summertime. Um, so what was it like growing up in Brooklyn, and how have you seen it change? Because I've seen a change. I'm from Brooklyn. Yeah, we're both natives. Yeah. You know, I um, I live in Fort Greene, which is quite gentrified. Uh, sure is. And the idea that I walk around in my neighborhood and I, my neighbors sort of dart their eyes or that we don't speak or, and I, I live in my, I bought my grandmother's house 25 years ago. Um, so I live in the house that literally my father was born in. Um, and then I would leave school and go to my grandmother's house and know all the neighbors. And I live next to my neighbor who is 98 years old who literally remembers the day that my father was born. Um, my, my parents uh, were very politically active in Brooklyn. Uh, my father and mother filed a lawsuit that changed gerrymandering laws in Brooklyn that um, changed the district so that Shirley Chisholm could be elected to Congress. So wow. the, cool. the idea that now there's sort of a new wave of folks who have no connection to the, the culture and the history and that you know, there is there. Part of the difficulty with gentrification for me is that one of the things that I always loved about Brooklyn is that you could have sort of a median income or be low income with people who actually made money and everybody was sort of mixed together, um, and that is now sort of destroyed. It's really sad. Um, and that we have Starbucks down the street is just really crazy and, and Whole Foods and it's taken the culture of the Apple store is just insane. Yeah. But it's also like 44 story buildings, um, which is horrible. My property value uh, has gone up, so that's not a horrible thing. But you know, all of the, many of the families that I grew up with have sold or left um, it's just, you know, it's, it is, um, it's bitter sometimes, but I still love living in Brooklyn, you know, I don't know, there are other places that, you know, at Afropunk that we go in the world from Johannesburg to, you know, Bahia in Brazil, and, and think about what would it be like to live in other places that are surrounded in, you know, black and brownness, which is what attracted me to living where I live, 
now, um, and now that that has changed, um, trying to figure out what my place in, in the world will be. But with all of that, Brooklyn is still, um, there are pockets that are still pretty uh, amazing. Um, right, down the line real fast. Favorite neighborhoods in Brooklyn. Go ahead, you start. I know what you're going to say. That's sad. What else? What, I, you know. It's now called White Side. No, 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 no. Don't do that. Don't do that. But I do, I've always loved Fort Green, too, and Clinton Hill. I went to middle school over there, and I'm forgetting the name of this author, but there's this film about, it's called Brooklyn Bohem. Bohem, and it's all and about, like, George. exactly. Oh. Um, and I just like fantasize about the world that that depicted. It talks about like all like Saul Williams and most death like just doing poetry at the Brooklyn Moon and like Chris Rock lived up the block and Spike Lee was just starting to do his thing. It, it reminds me so much of these like creative movements that are beginning now within my circle of black and brown people. Um, but it's, but and, and it is kind of heartbreaking when I go to Brooklyn now and I'm like, damn, like the roots of this place. I have no idea. Yeah. There's so many like families with strollers and they're like, ugh. But the creativity and the, the the genius of what Brooklyn was, just having trees and you know, just being surrounded and Is your favorite neighborhood Fort Green? My favorite neighborhood is still Clint Hill Fort Green. Not the gentrification piece of it, but just the, the trees and the green and the 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 feeling of being able to just walk around in a in the space. Yeah. Still, wow. Do I have any West Indians in here? Flatbush. I know because I'm always alone. I'm, all my friends are from Bed Stuy, so I'm the only one from Flatbush. But well, I was born in Bed Stuy. Okay, so another and one. I was born on Decatur Street, and that's when, oh, that's where she is. I was eight years old. My parents sold their house, 619 Decatur Street, to Chris Rock's family. So Chris Rock and I grew up in the same household, in the same bedroom. Um, so you touched on this a little bit that your parents were very politically involved. What were some of the um, I guess ideals that, that you were raised with that you channeled throughout your career? I grew up my father was very fearless. Uh, and very vocal, and um, he believed in speaking truth to power. He uh, quit his job at Schaefer Brewing Company and started a black newspaper called The City Sun and challenged um, the status quo almost every day of his life. Um, so that was uh, the, the values of giving back to your community, thinking about your community, making sure that you're uplifting your community were um, deeply ingrained in me. Yeah, I feel like that makes sense because now you're working on Afropunk, which when I'm there, I feel uplifted and um, special and, and important. Um, but anyways, that's great. Yeah, <laughs> of course, lovely. That's the way I want you to feel. Yeah, go accomplish. Um, but speaking of activism, I'm just thinking a lot about the 2020 election. 
we're kind of been like flooded on our timelines about all the candidates and all these things. So I'm thinking about what issues are most important to me. Can you share what political issues currently are like the most important to you? You know, when I'm, for me, it's more about understanding the consequences of inaction. And I think our community really not understanding what happens when there is apathy in our community and not being involved in the process. And one of the things that is so um, exciting for me is young people. And when I say young people, I mean 15 year olds, 16 year olds, 17 year olds, 18 year olds, 19 year olds who now are politically engaged. I wasn't when I was that young. I was always a serious kid, but I, I didn't understand the issues. I wasn't fighting. I wasn't on, obviously, we didn't have social media, but I wasn't on social media really understanding what was happening. Um, so the idea that Donald Trump exists in America and I have a whole group of people that I know that are like, I didn't fucking vote. I was like, are you kidding me? Yeah. You don't realize what happens when you don't, you don't realize that if you don't vote and that dude gets in and he changes the Supreme Court and the, the correlation between that and, and having an attorney general that doesn't do shit about Eric Gardner's death, like there is a line there. Right. So I'm more, interested in us understanding how every action or inaction affects the change than I am in my sort of political voice or issue. Um, clearly, you know, women's rights are a thing for me. The idea that we could potentially have an entire Senate or Congress that will to tell me what I can do with my body or any of my friends' bodies or women's bodies is insanity. It's terrifying. Handmaid's Tale. Very serious. <laughs> very serious shit. Yeah. Do you guys want to call out what are the most important issues to you all? As like voters, you guys are going to be voting. Environmental preservation. Criminal justice reform. I'm really freaked out about like the stuff happening at the border. Like, I'm not an immigrant, but like the idea of kids being, you know, in the same clothes for that much time and like being separated from their families, that's something that I feel like if it was happening in any other country, the UN would step in. I don't know. Um, Glenn, what's important to you, thinking about voting? I mean, so many things that you both mentioned, but also I would love to have my student loan debt card. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I really think it would re release a lot of pressure
creating a space where people can, can be free and where we can bring in organizations that can help to educate and inform uh, and artists who are in an environment um, and many artists who who may be used to performing to only white audiences coming into the space helps some of those folks to find their voice. Um, so someone like, and I'm not, I'm not taking credit for this because I don't know if this w was the case, but if you look at someone like Gary Clark Jr. as an example, who's an amazing guitar player who um, has performed in front of mostly white audiences. He comes back continually to, to, to Afropunk and then made a political record about race and his experience. Um, I think it is, it, it is the environment and the space that we are creating so people feel free enough to be able to do that. Makes um, me very proud sort of forgotten the full question, but that that piece of it, um, I'm very happy about. Yeah. Have you seen, or what has been your favorite, I guess, politically driven Afropunk performance? Performance or moment? Moment. Like that, that Angela Davis came to Afropunk last year. Um, that's huge. And that's huge. So to have, Alicia Garza, Angela Davis, Elaine Brown is coming to Afropunk this year. Um, to be able to have those cross-generational political conversations, and I introduced Angela Davis to Chris Rock, that's a moment for me. That's a moment. Jump back a little bit to sort of your journey to Afropunk. Um, we watched this documentary. It was this Red Bull Maven's documentary on you. Really, really great. Um, and Vivian Scott Chu was on it, um, just sort of commenting on your rise. And she said she made this comment, and both Chelsea and I looked at each other like, "What?" She said like, "I guess one of your first days in the office, you had a, like a long pleated skirt, oh, yeah. and she told you." You're gonna have to shorten that skirt. This is the music business. And a turtleneck, yeah. yeah. Can you just speak on that? I guess we started to think about this this idea of the misogyny within hip hop and just how you had to move as a woman in this field. So I worked, and somebody actually had to remind me of this story. So I worked in the music business when the music business was truly sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was um, not the uh, environment that we are living in today. There was no Me Too, I guess. There was no Me Too. If you got if if you if you got harassed, you dealt with it. That's just how it was. Because if you didn't deal with it, then you would get blackballed. And I, before I met Vivian, I was working at a recording studio called Soundtrack, and the owner of the studio at a party grabbed my ass and said something really lewd to me, um, oh, no. and freaked me out, completely freaked me out. 
and from that moment I decided that I would dress and I would present myself as somebody who was very serious and that no man would feel that they could say some shit or do some shit to me like that. Um, so I made a very conscious decision that I wanted to be respected for my talent uh, and my voice, as opposed to having big breasts and wearing high heels and sort of flaunting that. I wish that I had found a happy medium between the two. <laughs> Now that I'm older and sort of, I could, you know, you can use your power as a woman. Um, you that can't have power. Yeah, 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 we do. And I I've always loved being a woman when I was a little girl. I used to feel sorry for little boys because I felt like, oh, wow, they couldn't express themselves and they had to hold their emotions in. and. You know, people would tell them not to cry and not to do stuff, and I felt really sorry for them. Um, yeah. So, but that was that was the reason that she said that, and we had, and she was someone who was very flamboyant and very sexual, and um, definitely grew up in a very sexual and rock and roll environment, and was free. So she helped me to find sort of a, a, a happy medium between the two. Cool. After your tenure working with artists in the industry, how exactly did you make the transition then to working on Afropunk? Oh, it's okay, there's my fire. Uh-oh. Is it time for us to leave? No, no, no. Oh. Okay. It's true. Um, the transition, you know, it, it's interesting. Your attention, please. Oh. Uh-oh. We receive an alarm at the fire command station. We are investigating this situation. Please stand by for additional information. So don't leave yet. <laughs> right, right, right. Stay with you yeah, I want to hear about this transition. Yeah. Well, we can take those tables and throw them out of the window. <laughs> uh, we need to escape. Not that far of a jump. Nope. Okay. Um, the transition was a huge learning curve for me. So I started working at Afropunk with my partner, who is also my partner, partner, seduced me into working at Afropunk. <laughs> No, you know, when I understood what Afropunk was through Matthew's vision, uh, it completely sort of fit in my MO of what I've always worked on in my career. So, you know, when you all think about D'Angelo, you think about D'Angelo as this, um, or even Cash Money the mainstream kind of artists, but they were completely total outliers during, and they were extremely left of center uh, when I worked with them. So the idea that Afropunk was 
this movement that was affecting, changing culture on so many different levels through music and art and fashion and lifestyle sports, even comedy. And the idea that this, um, this thing could be global and speak to black excellence globally and a connection of, a, of the uh, black diaspora globally was um, life-changing for me when I actually got it, when it clicked in, when it was, because when I, when I first had initial conversations with Matthew about Afropunk, I was working, running L.A. Reed's music publishing company, uh, and Beyonce was one of the writers that was signed to his publishing company, and I told him about these 300 bands that Matthew knew about and that were like performing at Afropunk, but this is at a time when black people were not, you know, playing guitars in a mainstream way or instruments or bands were performing or touring in that way. Um, so I was so excited and when I was talking to sort of my mainstream friends in the music business, they didn't get it at all. They didn't see it at all. Um, so I decided to really dedicate my life. It, it, you know, changed everything that I was doing to, to work on. I know you still do a Battle of the Bands. Yes, yeah. Battle of the Bands is this week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. You guys have to come to the Knitting Factory. I went last year. It was amazing. It is. Yeah. So great. We just had our, our, just our Brooklyn uh, Battle of Bands winners, Tank and the Bangers, performed in Paris. Oh, I love them. They're amazing. So, so yeah. cool. I, I, was I love that program. That. they think about European white punk rock mm -hmm. and that is never what Afropunk has ever been about punk and it is more of an attitude um, and a punk attitude and being DIY you know doing it yourself and that idea that thread that value is what Afropunk has always been about um, so it is still our core value, we still, um, and, and I also think when people think about Afropunk, they think about Afropunk as the festival, and for us, Afropunk is more about the platform and being able to uh, use that platform to have an audience for culture and people that are left of center. We still are true to, to that value. The idea that we should stay stagnant and not grow um, is a ludicrous idea yeah. for me. You know, we employ 55 black people 
around the world. We employ and work with 250 black businesses, young businesses in our marketplace around the world, black vendors, black people that you know do stage and lighting and production, growing that, expanding that. The two people in this room who work at Afropunk that have now gone on to do amazing things and start their own companies and build empires for other companies and 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 curation and and taking a piece of Afropunk with them. Um, and, and that same spirit, that DIY spirit, the idea of focusing on black excellence and taking that to the world. Uh, you know, we get criticized a lot on online. I'm more focused on, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people that come to our festivals, the thousands of bands and musicians and artists that we feature who now can make a living touring and creating their art. I'm hyper-focused on, on that and growing that and we, and we should be doing that. You know, I don't pay attention. I shouldn't say I don't pay attention, but I don't, I'm not giving any energy to that negative shit, you know? Yeah, um, I think when Beyonce did perform at Coachella and she got up there and said, Oh, okay, thank you, sir. We have a show happening. Thank you. Well, when Beyonce got up there, and this is Beyonce, got up on stage and was like, I am the first ever black woman headliner. I was like, what the, like, what? This is so crazy. And so when I hear criticism about, yeah, ain't that a bitch, I remember. When I hear criticism of Afropunk, like, oh, it's not, you know, punk, it's like too mainstream now. I'm just like, well, a lot of these festivals don't even give black performers, like, even a platform. Like, thinking of that Beyonce had to wait so long to, like, be able to headline. I don't know, it was, it's crazy to me. And I see Afropunk and I'm like, everyone I'm seeing performing, like, reminds me a little bit, something about them is like me. Yeah, but it's not even true. Like, last year we had seven, I think seven, nine punk bands that performed at Afropunk. We had 60 bands that performed. Right. But that's what you're coming for. It's, it's a mix of everything. Yeah. Um, is it a totally just punk band festival? You know, a block party in the park? No. Right. But does everyone that is on that stage personify black excellence? Do we, are we still the hub and the home for those young bands to perform and to have a platform? Hell fucking yes we are. Yeah. You know? So many of our friends have been DJing every year. Yeah. So hyped for them. He made his performance this year. Yeah, exactly. Um, and exactly like you said, um, one of the big, I guess, pillars of what we try to do with Black Girls Texting is explore diversity within Blackness. Chelsea, you can see a little bit of yourself in everyone who performs and yeah. the crowd. It feels like it's a space for you to be 
lack in whatever way that like manifests itself for you. Yeah. So it's been a spell within everything you see. It is, and then it's also a connection with other countries. We have seven South African artists that are performing in Brooklyn this year. Tandiswa, BCBC, Shama Josie. I'm so happy she won a BET award, but Shama Josie performed at Afropunk first, the first time in New York. So the idea, like, that shit is punk. Yeah. Love that diaspora connection. Is there, okay, I have another question about the ticket prices, because that's another thing that we saw online when doing our research. Can you talk about the chip in, chip in the earn a ticket program? Because when I was researching that, that's what I saw. Because there, there has been like critique about how it was once free, and now it's not. Girl, I earned my ticket on that trip in last summer. I know you sure did. <laughs> so let's talk about this idea of free. Mm -hmm. So Afropunk was never free. There were people that paid for Afropunk. Right. My partner paid for it out of his pocket. I took my cash money royalties and put it into the pot and paid for it. And we got to a place where it just didn't make sense anymore because if we are going to build a business and we are going to build an ecosystem for us to be able to support our own culture, mm -hmm. then we have to value those experiences as much as we value wearing Nikes or Adidas or, you know, going and, and buying. Our culture is important. It belongs to us. We need to support it. Yeah. So we have both an earned ticket, which is what you're talking about with Chippen, where you can come and give back to your community, to, to black and brown people, to help uplift your community and physically get your hands dirty or take an action so that you are giving back in order to earn your way into the festival. And we have that at all of our festivals. And then there's this idea that we sell a ticket for, I believe it is $60, $65. That is $1 for every artist that is performing on the stage. I don't know and maybe you can tell me if there is another festival that you can spend one dollar to go see Jill Scott or one dollar to see FKA Twitter or one dollar to see Erica Badu or Janelle Monet or Solange. That is that is we are dedicated to keeping the ticket prices low and to build this ecosystem, but we also need to have the respect to pay our artists, to pay our creators, to pay our staff. We have 55 black people that work for us. They deserve to make a living and to be able to eat and to pay their rent and to be able to produce our events and to work on our content. That is important. The idea that we do not value ourselves enough 
to think that we are deserving to support our own shit is insanity to me. That's not angry because I didn't mean to sound angry. No, that's cool. But it just honestly, really, I, I don't know where we get this idea or the lack of thinking that it's okay to support other people's stuff, but supporting our own thing is not as important. It's just crazy to me. It's true, and then and then we can't complain when there aren't black-owned businesses because we haven't supported them. Um, I mean, we're often the hardest on ourselves, I think, on, on each other. Yeah, we are, yeah. and we need to change that. Yeah. We need to fix that. We don't keep our money in our community, our dollars in our community. You know, if you come to Afropunk and you're buying, you spend your dollars to come and you pay for a ticket and then you buy from a vendor, you keep, we're keeping our money in our community. That's so important. If you look at other communities, their money stays in their community for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and, weeks and months. Yeah, I was reading I something. Like six hours. Yeah, I was just gonna say the black dollar like stays in the black community for literally six hours, and then it goes somewhere else. Whereas other what? communities, it stays at least for a week. It'll stay in their own community. So let's work on that, y'all. That that <laughs> that is political. Yeah. Yeah. To me. yeah. Um, I guess. It's only that. Yeah, and I want to hear from the audience. Yeah. Wait, but before we, before we get to the audience, I have one last final question. Who is your favorite artist to listen to right now? You have to pick one. You're on an island, stranded. I'd be listening to Scarlord screaming my head off right now. <laughs> I love Scarlord. I don't know if you know him, don't, but nope. oh, check him out. Scarlord. Okay. Scar -Lord. Any, anyone else that we might know? <laughs> Sorry, Tyler. I'd probably be listening to the Tyler Theater record. Yeah. Igor. Yeah, it's very good. Um, now we want to open it up to our audience, because as we said, we're all together. So you just raise your hand. Hello. Oh, can you paint a picture of what the very first half of book was like? Like, weird, how not at the very first Alpha Punk. My partner describes it as 25 kids in a room um, with some of the bands from the original documentary. And for him, the first feeling was freedom because kids were moshing. And the idea that people could step on each other's sneakers and push each other around and have all that energy. Um, we still have a lot of that at Afropunk. Um, but that feeling of freedom is what uh, he's focused on reproducing every day of um, our lives. Raise your hand if you have a question. As we get the mic to you, um, I have another question. Is Afropunk for white people too? Afropunk is for everybody. Afropunk is a celebration of black excellence, uh, but it's 
you know, it's interesting for me when people say that as a light-skinned black woman who grew up in a middle-class household and has um, folks in my family who are white, who is in an office who, with black people who are married to white people, who have mixed-race children, who have grandparents or parents um, that may be white. The idea that we would say to folks, you can come, but you can't come, um, is just ridiculous to me. I'm unapologetically black, uh, but just because I am unapologetically black and celebrate my blackness does not mean it is not at the exclusion of anyone else. It's just what I like on myself, but everybody is welcome. Thank you. Sorry, I just keep on hot. First of all, that um, response about paying for the value, hiking yummy. The response you said, I completely agree about the value of Apple Punk and people complaining about it. Thank you, I agree with your point. As entrepreneurs, a lot of people probably are, you have to pay for your content. But my question to you is about the controversy I heard, maybe, or I think it was about MIA, or like as you expand globally, which is needed, people complain that Apple Punk should be only for black artists. Um, I want you to respond to that. And I, I'm curious, because I lived in Europe for three years. I love MIA, but can you talk about what that kind of thought process was and how your thoughts on who's part of the score or what's the music that should be represented at Apple Punk? So my thoughts about MIA were very, very different than some of the folks that were around at the time when the decision was made for, for MIA and MIA ultimately making the decision that she did not want to perform at the festival. Um, I there was backlash from the British community who, and there are still some, so what we just talked about, yeah. that think that um, the space is only for black people, and it's not. We have allies, and we want our allies to be part of our space. Um, we are focused on showcasing artists of color, uh, showcasing black artists, so that they have an equal playing field in the way that they have not had uh, in mainstream, on mainstream platforms. Um, but I, that was the case for me, which can be the case of sort of the, the online community and the voices of a few who happen to be loud, mm -hmm. um, sort of changing the, tra the trajectory of what we were doing in a negative way. Yeah. Um, if that had solely been my decision, we would have stuck to our guns and MIA would have played. We were, um, I would love to have her play a festival again. Um, we had Grace Jones play that year, so that was pretty spectacular. Yeah. But um, yeah, it, it is, you know, this dance of, it, as Spike Lee would say, you know, I've heard him say, just being run over by black Twitter. 
That's just, it's, 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 a, it's very difficult, you know, as a, a young business when we were developing not to um, buy into some of that. It's hard, it's tough. People, when they are behind their keyboards or on their phones, can be incredibly Ooh. mean. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And that's scary. So, but all are welcome. All right. Uh, I have a question. Um, based on what you just said, and also the fact that you mentioned you're like, I know we're all pretty unapologetic black people in here. Um, but what would you kind of what advice would you give to someone who is like trying to find their punk, or like someone who let's say like you know things are flighty and inconsistent, and sometimes you know you get run over by black short at one day, and then it's kind of like all right, well that was pretty powerful last week, and then today it's like you know the ebbs and flows of it. Kind of what advice would you give to maintain that idea, like DIY, do yourself. You know, it's interesting because they're, again, two folks that we um, we worked with or worked with years ago who have seen us at Afropunk in our, pretty much our darkest moments where we had no money, where we couldn't pay people properly or the way that we wanted to, when there was no revenue from tickets to pay folks. Um, when we had a, a force majeure, when the festival in 2011 was canceled by the city uh, and we were underinsured and um, had to dig out of a hole. It took us almost three, four years to dig out of a hole and we still get criticized about that. Ended up paying everybody back, but it was a long haul. I mean, I'm, I have, to, I have to give it up to, to Franz, who put up his own money to help Afropunk uh, many years ago, and Khalid, who just worked his ass off till he couldn't work anymore. And then, you know, it, I am so grateful for to, to the people that have worked for us. But what I would say is that we literally sometimes I would crawl out of bed um, because and I was lucky enough to save my house because <laughs> I was in foreclosure. Like, it was tough. We went through some shit. Um, but what we did do was believe in ourselves and believe in our mission and believe in our talent. Um, and maybe that is ridiculous, but we believe. And because we believe, sometimes you just have to put one foot in front of the other and you have to keep going and then one day you look up and you will have walked a mile or two or three or five or ten. Um, and that's the advice that I would give. Stick to your guns. Keep doing you. Stay focused. Um, don't allow anybody to deter you. Thank you. How you found the balance between advocacy and professional development? I personally struggle with wanting to prioritize my professional development, but not being able to ignore the passion for my community, but also working a nine to five and being like, all right, I got five to nine to you know, help my community. Where is that opportunity or what can I do? 
You do. You have five to nine to help your community, and you have Saturday and Sunday to help your community. But they're also, you know, finding a gig out there if you're working for. I have a, a friend who works uh, works for a bank, left, worked for a nonprofit, couldn't make it financially work. The work was really fulfilling, then went back to working for a bank, but now works on the philanthropic side with the bank. I think there's a way to, to marry both. It may take some time, but if you're out there searching for that and that's a, a focus of yours, you can figure out a way to, to, to do both. If not, just get back on the weekends and get back to your community. I mean, it, you know, I, <laughs> I was going to say, you know, you can sort of, and, and this is not a politically correct thing to say, but, you know, we can sleep when, we, when we're dead. You know, we're here to, to um, do as much as we possibly can and, and live life to your the fullest, and you need some self-care for, for sure. I'm not saying neglect yourself to do that. Um, but if you're working 40 hours a week, there's another, you know, 10 hours during that week that you might be able to get back. Hi, Ms. Cooper. I don't have a question. I just want to say thank you for everything that you've shared. I'm personally extremely inspired. I just wanted to let you know that. I am a 25-year-old business owner, so just hearing you say certain things like you, you know what you're doing or, or just going through certain things, like just sharing your whole story, I'm really inspired. I just wanted to let you know that. Thank you. What's your business? Uh, so I have a spa. I'm a massage therapist. Ooh, lit. Long Island, we must City connect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have, we might have some business for you. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. I just wanted to say thank you. That's wonderful. Congratulations to you. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Hi, um, my name is Red Autumn. I'm actually a female rapper from Clinton Hill, Brooklyn, so I'm like... Hey, <laughs> um, I was like listening because when I found out that you were going to be here, I was I just couldn't believe like you were going to be here. So, um, That's so sweet. So basically, I was like, you know you can find my email on that. Yeah, this is what I wanted to know because um, I am a songwriter as well. Like, I write pop, neo, soul, R&B, and I actually have demos, and I wanted to know if it's okay if I could send you some of my demos. Well, I am not the demo listener anymore okay um and when i say that because i'm not actively involved in the music business on the songwriting side in the way that i used to be but if you send me your demos i will send them to a friend of mine that does do that um now my my life has very much changed in in terms of the the talent um helping process i don't i have my music publishing clients are, are sort of old <laughs> and have been my clients for many many years and i'm and, and and being a music publisher is something that i love doing for many many years but i don't do it anymore but i'd be more than happy to connect you with somebody who does okay, thank you You're welcome i just want to follow up oh. uh, 
No, it was just also something, um, just dealing with Netflix, and it's off topic with Afropunk. Um, it was one of the things that I noticed, like, say, for instance, with the show The Get Down, and I just also found out that She Gotta Have It is canceled. Um, I just wanted to know why, like, do you think shows that seem to, like, celebrate our artistry is not doesn't seem to be appeal enough to basically shows that seem to show more of our hardship and they get to stay longer. I think that goes into the full circle conversation. We really need to support. And if we support and come out in droves, there's no question um, that those shows will exist for a long time. That's, that's what it comes down to. And also, obviously, the cost of the show. I know with the get down, the cost of the show is, it was a Bob Lerman production. Um, and he got a lot of money for producing that show. And I think sort of took it to as far as they wanted to take it. So I've seen a do, theme. Do you, want, do you want to respond to that question too? Wow, really? No, you can't. Come on. Yeah. Come on, Bron. Hiya. Hey, yo. All right. So to, to respond to that question, it is about the fact that um, Netflix is basing, like every other network before it, Fox, WB, CW, whatever you want to call it, they build their clientele off of doing thing for the African-American community. But as soon as they are able to build up that clientele, they then do the bait and switch and basically remove that programming from what it is that you want to see or you said that you wanted to see. And then they start delving into mainstream programming for the masses. So the only way that we are to sustain that is as Jocelyn said is to basically support our own businesses there are a number of services out there that are much smaller that are collecting IP of various black focused content and they're not getting the same uh, they're not getting the same promotion dollars as Netflix will put out there or Disney with their new streaming service or any of that stuff but you do have to search and you have to promote them so that you will be able to get the content that you are looking for. So that was the answer to that question. Thank you. Support. Yeah. And your question. My question is, I've seen a theme, Jocelyn, that of always going against the grain when you're, you know, doing uh, A&R and you're signing Southern rappers when people are like, what the fuck is that? And then you're going off to Afropunk and dealing with a culture that not everyone understood or what have you. Where do you get the strength to be able to continue to do that? So here's the thing with me. Um, I am, what'd you say? I am crazy. Yes, I'm crazy. Um, I, at a very young age, had a very, um, I was very shy, but I also had a real sense of myself. 
and I have very strong opinions about what I like and what I don't like. Like, very strong What's opinions. What's your size? I'm a cancer. Oh, <laughs> that, I'm, I'm very clear. Like, I love peaches, but I don't really like... I don't, yeah, no, I like apples, but I'm allergic to apples. I don't like, like, um, figs. I don't like the texture. Um, so that clarity of what I like, I don't really give a shit if other people don't like it. It's what I like. Um, it just so happens that usually what I like, other people will start to like. So I was very confident in that, in my career, about my strong opinions. Like, I really feel this. And I'm also somebody who will stick with something or someone or an idea for years. Literally 10 years, I will focus on something and chip away at it every single solitary day until I have a sculpture or a masterpiece. I have that ability. I don't, that came from my, I think that really came from my parents who I saw get up every single day and persevere, but it was also that sense of self that I've just always had. So that's it. That's all I got. You're a visionary. I mean, know about that. Yeah, that's... I just know what I like. <laughs> I wanted to just, one more thing that maybe we could all think about a bit. Um, I really love the exchange that you two just had about her sending some demos to you. And we talk about this a lot on Black Girls Texting. Sometimes we see online that women that we admire will say, don't send me an email asking to pick my brain or asking yeah. to take me to coffee to, to get information from me. Like, you have to pay for my time. Oh, wow. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's how people are moving. Yeah, I got so, into an Instagram argument really? with a woman I admire. Yeah, and it makes really? us afraid to, like, yeah. shoot our shot. And I think so much of, like, the progress that we're going to make as a lot of us in this room, our entrepreneurs are by expanding our networks, by talking to people that have been able to trailblaze, blaze a trail for us ahead of us and learn from them. So just anything. white men have been doing it for years. Exactly. Well, I think one, it's important to to mentor folks. It's also I stand on the shoulders of you know Vivian Scott Chu and Sylvia Rohn and Rochelle Fields and. You know, I was very fortunate in my career that many of my mentors uh, were black women. And I came into the music business at a time where there was a first generation of black women who had made inroads. Um, so it's always important for me to take the time to actually speak to somebody. Now to take the time, you know, if I am on the road in Brazil to have a two-hour conversation to mentor somebody, I may not be able to do that. Right. Um, but I definitely understand how my experience and my words can change um, the trajectory for 
a young person and particularly young women and I am here for that. Absolutely. Sure. I think it's evident in you being here with us tonight. We yeah. consistently are so um, affirmed by when we reach out to black women and they're willing to come here and speak with us. They're, they always are and we thank you so much being with us tonight. Thank you. You guys yeah. are inspiring. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and also thank everyone in this room. As I said before, the weather was disgusting and everyone came out in the rain. I really appreciate it. Oh, we have one last question. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I know. Now it's not going to be so muggy. Oh, we have one, let's, one last quick question for the beautiful woman who did my braids. I wanted to know how do you become a vendor at AfroPunk? Oh. A vendor? Yes. You have to apply via your site? On AfroPunk.com. That was my only question. And you go, <laughs> and you go down to the Spendthrift Market. But here's the deal. You have to apply early. I, I went on the site and then... Vending is closed for Brooklyn. Yeah. Okay. Because you can't be late. <laughs> because um, we open it up really early. So if you sign up and we take a look, there's a lot of competition for Brooklyn. If you're really interested in vending, vending in Atlanta is one of the best places to vend because that's where we actually need quality vendors. Um, so sign up on afropunk.com under Spindrift Market. Okay, just one more, and we have to let Jocelyn live her life. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not trying to take too much of your time, uh, but I appreciate you articulating uh, what you said AfroPunk offers for like the black community, vendors, as well as the performers. Uh, but also coming from a creative space, I encounter a lot of uh, friends, associates, etc., who they find an issue at times with minorities and executive roles who actually may block them from progressing within their careers. Yeah. Um, and so I was just hoping you might be able to, you know, give maybe some insight for somebody who's either dealing with that or if you have any advice on how to maybe circumvent that to still be able to pursue your path. Okay, so here's the deal. For us, many of the first champions of, we are conservative people. We are also <coughs> dealing with a lot of, um, trauma and we have um, systematically not been taught to trust each other. We have to navigate through a lot of that. We have to navigate through a lot of that at AfroPunk. Makes me want to cough, choke me. <laughs> I remember being in a meeting at Pepsi, one of the highest ranking people of color at Pepsi, in front of eight white executives and one black executive. Shot down Afropunk. Um, and we had just had two years of sponsorship with them. And for the third year, sorry, she canceled it. I have never ever forgotten that moment. Um, 
some of our cheerleaders have been white people, and particularly white men. Um, as much as I want to be able to walk into a room and say, you know, to my sister or brother, hey, you know, thank you, and get that kind of support from, from them. Sometimes it doesn't happen. But for me, you just have to do whatever you have to do to get your shit off. You do what you need to do for you. And if that means sometimes finding a, an ally, white godmother or godfather, then that's the way to go. And people will eventually come around. And that's what happened with Afropunk. Initially, many of the folks that supported us were white executives who really got it, who found it interesting or exotic or, um, and now the, the community and even mainstream black community has been embracing us and, and, and coming around. And sometimes that's just part of it. So my advice is don't let those folks stop you. You'll find one or two that do believe and will help. So keep, keep pushing. Thank you so much. Um, um, so we are Black Girls Texting. We host um, a weekly podcast available on Spotify, Apple Music, SoundCloud. And we also host monthly events here at the Dumbo House where we have um, Black women that we admire come and speak to us and give us some insight, give us their roadmap. So thank you, Jocelyn. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's so lovely to meet yeah. you both. Of course. You're missing your third partner. And I know. It's okay. We'll, but we'll, we'll see her in LA. <laughs> thank yeah. you very much. This has been a wonderful experience. Thank, thank you. you. And thank you to my friends who showed up. So feel free to mingle, um, make friends with the person to your left and right. This is a community, guys. Thank you again.